Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Malik, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sal Dietrich. Sal, you excited about tonight's program? Ed, we are a people who are literally losing the ability to listen to one another, to listen to our, our inner voice, really. Uh, listening, though, really is the foundation at times, really the spark that enables us to give uh, to others. Uh, and to help others in need. Look, listening's hard. It's it's particularly hard for radio show hosts. But uh, tonight's guest, Art Bennett, the CEO and president of Catholic Charities of the Arlington Diocese and the co-author of Tuned In, The Power of Pressing Pause and Listening. Art joins us to talk about what listening really is, how to do it with purpose, and the benefits and joy of doing so, something the folks at Catholic Charities experience every day. Art, my friend, welcome to the Grace and 30 radio show. Thank you, Sal. Thank you, Ed. It's great to be here. So in your book, uh, you say that listening is the most important thing, and, and that's a really a profound statement. And I was wondering, why did you say that? Well, actually, I was reading, and Pope Benedict XVI, he's the one that said it. So my wife and I uh, have a pretty good library of Benedict XVI books, and when he said that, I go, hey, Lorraine, Lorraine, look at Benedict saying the most important thing is listening. What do you think about that? So we just started discussing that and kind of reflecting on it. And I mean, Benedict is willing to say profound things. I mean, he's willing to be kind of bottom line on stuff. He doesn't really dance around. So when he said that, it really caused us to kind of pause and say, well, hmm, maybe we can reflect on that a little bit better. So that really was the start of it. I mean, it sounds kind of odd that it would be an academic kind of theological book, but that's what really started it. And then, of course, in our marriage, we can always listen better. And just so just kind of reflecting on what he said about that. And his point on that was that uh, take, what, taking in reality is the most important thing, and that you can only do that if you just are open to what reality is or what other people are. So. You, you make a comment that there's a distinction between listening and hearing. Right, yeah. Listening is really when you're trying to not just hear the words or get the point and move on, but where you're paying attention to the person who's talking to you. So it's really listening more with the heart as well as the ears. And uh, Pope Francis makes a big deal of this, uh, that there's all sorts of noise and all sorts of communication, but there's not real listening going on. And of course, he makes the biggest deal out of encounters, encountering people and not just kind of floating transactionally through life. So listening is where you list, you're just not hearing the words, but you're saying, well, who's this person and what are they trying to get across to me and what, what are they trying to tell me about whatever they're trying to tell me? And that, and instead of planning my repartee or planning my clever, <laughs> clever comeback or pointing out where they're wrong, you just kind of listen and absorb it and make sure you really understand what the person's saying. Yeah, in, in tuned in, you you talk about you know the fact that we live in a transactional society, and that really stuck with me. I mean, today we we see that it's a tweet, it's a a quick note here and there, uh, something that people will shoot off and and try to get reaction. You know, how is this really affecting our ability? To listen, and, and how do we try and counter some of these things? Well, yeah, yeah the, the transactional is, uh, I mean, you go to a store, let's say you want to buy anything, aspirin. You go to the store, you, you pick up aspirin, you put it on the counter, there's a person there, and the person's going to ring it up, and you're just wanting them to ring it up and give your, take your credit card and move on. And there's a time and place for that, but what, I think what's happening a lot of our lives, that's all we're doing. Or we come home, say, hey, babe, how's it going? Hi, how's the kids? How's this? How's this? Maybe then we go off and have a quick meal. Maybe we talk. Maybe we don't. Then we go on our phone or then we go on and watch a television show. So what can happen is you can, you can, you can live hours and hours of a day with people 
and really not sitting and going, well, what's really going on with you? Or can I tell you about my day and that kind of thing? It's very easy to do. So the transactional world is one of just uh, meet, greet, get what you want, and then move on. Whereas uh, as people, we want to hit, we call the pa- hit the pause button and say, well, wh- what's happening? What's going on here? So, for example, you can go to the store and you can buy your aspirin. You can say, hey, listen, thank you very much. I really appreciate this. Uh, how is your day going or how's it going? Sometimes you time that. It takes like seven seconds. Big deal. But, but it just treats the person like a person as opposed to just like a vending machine who has two arms. You know? Yeah, I think you said this in the book where you say, you know, you're, you and your wife were having dinner with a couple and... You know, how often people just, you know, check their cell phone now six, seven times during a meal or, or anywhere and uh, just just tune out, right, and go on and do something else. And it just really has become, uh, you know, a part of our society is to sort of take these uh, breaks, if you will, from engaging and really thinking about things and contemplating this. I mean, I mean you'd say that, uh, you know, cleverly say that social media is kind of like a mugger. You know, it grabs you and it won't let you go uh, until you respond. And, you know, it's funny you think about people get on Facebook and, and they sort of become absorbed in something uh, very transactional, you know, very superficial at times. And, you know, wake up and 30 minutes have gone and, you know, their children are there. And then all of a sudden it's sort of, well, we got to hurry up and get something done because I've sort of zoned out in a way. Yeah, I mean, we do some things now that maybe if we were, looking we're so kind of used to them but the way they're odd like you could take someone out to dinner and pay for a very expensive dinner and there can be portions of that where i'm looking at my phone so i'm with you babe i'm talking to you sweetheart or whatever but actually right now i'm more interested in what what's happening on msnbc or i'm more interested in what's happening yahoo sports and stuff and somehow that's that can become a normal part or i can look over your left shoulder at the ball game that's on or the right your right shoulder at what some of the things so two people are together and it's actually radically impersonal it's ra- in fact, it's not even a personal. It's more like I'm glad to be in, at the same table with you, but really, this is just an opportunity to kind of scan the world without encountering each other. It's funny. I was taking a walk yesterday, and there were a group of eight men going into a community center, and all eight of them were looking at their phones, and none of them were talking to each other. And I thought that was kind of remarkable. Is it mainly the social media that has caused this, or was this happening before social media became big? And and what do we do to counter this? I don't know. I think it. I think it probably goes back a, a ways. I remember I was reading a, a book once where a person talked about all of a sudden people used to sit at the dinner table and then came the radio and the radio was put on and then people, instead of talking to each other, they wanted to know what was happening in the world and so they listened to the radio and that that was the big interruption that kind of stopped one of the primary ways that people, even though everyone was real busy and working long hours and exhausted, but people would come together at dinner break bread and talk and then the radio came in and then there's been an endless stream from radio to television to all these kind of things that has kind of made it harder to have the encounters now i think what's happening now with our where it's such an aggressive culture uh, that's why we use the mugging reference uh what can happen is unless you're intentionally going to go out to dinner with someone or chat with them and uh, uh, next to, a person next to you on the airplane or something just to really want to talk. So we have to do that more intentionally, where I think before culture was set up a little bit better ways that perhaps, maybe I'm romanticizing, was much as easier, much easier to have a conversation and dialogue with somebody. Yeah. So it takes effort and work, correct, to listen? Well, that's, that's the other thing too, is, uh, is to take the time that I want to really, when I ask you, hey, how's it going? I really want to know how it's going. You may go on a long tangent. You may be tell me something I don't really want to hear. You may just say everything's fine. But to really kind of allow yourself to encounter the heart of the other person is, 
is really what listening listening is a necessary part of that. And the other thing about listening too is you you anyone can listen. Uh, you know, we have a grandson who's three years old and doesn't talk. He's had some, some problems, but he can listen. I mean, we call across the room, he can listen. So anyone can listen. So really, it's, a, it's more of an act of intentionality. So the reason we, we wrote the book or want to reflect on it is this is something anyone can do. Not anyone can be a great speaker. Not anyone can be a singer or eloquent. But anyone can really try to really listen carefully to what people are saying and try to understand it. Yeah, you know, a lot of our guests, uh, we always say that, you know, they've been prepared their whole life to, to do something they're really supposed to do. And they find by their training in some ways, whether they're in Harvard MBA or a fireman, they're called to serve other people, to help other people, to heal other people. And they go on to do these, these incredible acts of, of grace. And it all starts with listening. It never really starts with judging or talking. A lot of them will say, I found some, I saw some kids on the streets in DC and I started talking to them. What, what, why were they, why was there no after school program from then? And then they'll, this for folks, the folks at DC scores, for example, went on to start an organization that now takes care of over 2000 children every day, providing after school activities and busing. That all came from an act of listening, not really an act of, uh, you know, a Harvard MBA, uh, coming in and saying, Hey, uh, this is what you kids should be doing. You know, get off the street. You all at Catholic Charities, I think, deal with this more than most because getting involved and and helping out is something we all want to do But at times, but it's really the listening and hanging in there for the long run that makes the difference. Tell us a little bit about how listening has played a role in the way you've shaped some of your, your programs at Catholic Charities, uh, some of your uh, efforts to help the least of these. Well, you know, the people we deal with at Catholic Charities are under high risk to feel uh, undignified or to feel like their lives are going up in a downward spiral, and they could be. Uh, their self-worth and self-esteem are very fragile because they don't have, the <coughs> excuse me, they don't have a kind of things going for them like a social capital and, and, and some leisure and, and, and kind of a comfortable job. Uh, they're usually all working full-time, but they just can't make ends meet, so they're high risk to feel discouraged or to feel unappreciated, or perhaps they're in an ethnic group or a social class where they're kind of overlooked. So one of the things we try to do is to really pay attention and attend to people. So I'll give you an example. We, uh, we have people come to our St. Lucie Food Pantry, so they come to the pantry, and uh, we learned this at a small pantry in uh, Rappahannock County where we were visiting uh, the person there to kind of get some ideas and best practices. And she goes, oh, excuse me, I have, a, I, have a cu- I have a client here. I want to I want to walk with her as she shops. And we watched her do that, and so what she was doing, she wasn't walking with this person to make sure she doesn't take, t- she takes too many tomatoes or too many onions and stuff. She was walking and saying, well, listen, I haven't seen you in a while. How's it going? What's, what's up with your husband? He wasn't feeling too well last time you were here. Oh, he's still having trouble? Yeah, yeah, th- those are the, the broccoli. Yeah, take as much broccoli as you want. Uh, so she, what she was doing, she was treating this person as, a, as a, somebody who had a story, and she wanted to hear the story, and she wanted to accompany her and talk to her, making some suggestions on the food, but really showing radical respect. And we watched this, and we go, wow, that's interesting, because what we found out in the focus groups when we went around the diocese, you know, we covered 21 counties. We said, well, all right, you're a volunteer, you're trying to help people with food, what's the biggest problem? And almost across the board, they said, they didn't use the word transactional, but that's what they're saying was, you know, I mean, you know, people come, we give them the food, they take off, big deal, big deal. No encounter, no real in- engagement, and, pe- and just people get discouraged. So when we watched this person in Rappahannock, we said, wow, she's really treating, this is what we thought maybe Pope Francis was getting, she's really treating them as people who have a story 
and, and we just want to hear their story and listen to them. So it really changed the whole way we did our, our food program. So we now do that accompanying, as we call it, around. And, and you have to make sure people don't think, no, we don't think you're going to steal the food. We just want to see what's going on, what else is happening. And then we also find other things. Well, oh, you, you have some immigration problems. Well, we can help you with that. Or you need a better job. Well, we can have workshops for that. So it's really just kind of having an engagement, listening to them, letting them tell their story, and then then seeing how you can help. <laughs> have you formalized this in some way, trying to promote that sort of listening on the staff? Well, we have, yeah. So with our food program, other things too. I mean, the, the, the real temptation in our business is you see people, and, and, and it's almost obvious, like when you see a homeless person or a person comes to our evening meals, they have so many problems, they kind of wear them on their sleeves. So you can really quickly categorize them, uh, well, what they need or what they want. And so it takes a lot of discipline it likes a lot of discipline to really listen and, and, and let people talk. Also, the people we're working with tend to have low trust. Uh, they've been burned before. People made promises they don't keep. So sometimes we can kind of overreact to that by being overly conciliatory and making all sorts of suggestions. Or mm. just we pick up that sense of distrust and then we don't really engage with them. So we try. I mean, it's hard. But also, people feel more like dignified people you know because we're a catholic organization you know we believe people are made in the image and likeness of god okay so they have god within them and you want to be connecting with that even though they're having a rough time or their lives are not going the way they are so we try to intentionally make people feel very valued even though sometimes we can't give them what they want you know they want us to pay their all the rent we can't do pay all the rent we can pay some of it so we're trying to connect with them as people uh, by listening you know, Art, when you and I got together beforehand, it, it's clear to me that, you know, you really have a heart um, for people who have mental health issues. And this is this is a, um, a something that, that's near and dear to you. Um, you know, tell us where that sort of came from in, in your life and sort of your story to, to come to come to Catholic Charities. And then talk to us about some of the mental health programs that uh, Catholic Charities offers. Well, I, I did get, I kind of got into mental health in a kind of odd way. I was, to be quite candid, I was kind of depressed. I was about 30. We had two children. Uh, I wasn't really making ends meet. I wasn't sure what to do. So I went and saw a therapist. And the whole time I'm sitting there at the therapist, and he's telling me this and that. And the other thing, I'm going, wow, what an interesting way to make a living. I got totally distracted by the whole thing. I said, so you sit here and you talk to people and you try to help them and all that. And that's interesting because... I'd, I had tried to do an academic career being a philosopher, but it, it just wasn't logical enough, so I had to get out of that. So I was kind of floundering around. So really, be honest, I was floundering around, saw a therapist, and I said, this sounds, this looks remarkable. So then I just got in high gear, went and got a degree, and, and then ended up being a marriage therapist. I really, at the time I was in California in the uh, uh, early 80s, marriage therapy was like going to solve all the problems of life, the systemic thinking. and. Uh, I was really excited about it too. So that's how I got into it. I was a, I had problems, <laughs> like most therapists, I was a wounded healer, I guess, and and thought that that would be a, a, a great way to kind of make a living, and that's the truth. So though I'm the, I'm the president of Catholic Charities, I don't do any counseling right now. Uh, we have a, a lot of counseling at Catholic Charities uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, our Catholic Charities program has a heavy emphasis on mental health. Uh, I think it's the Catholic notion of treating the whole person, body, soul, and mind. So you give them food, you help them with the rent, you give them a, a, some tips on how to get a job, but I think we're also looking at people that are very wounded and very hurt. So we've always been able to, much even before I got here, uh, put some time and energy into having clinicians help people. So for example, it's every Catholic charity probably has a, a homeless shelter for men and a homeless shelter for families. We have that as well. But we also have clinicians that work with those people to try to find out, well, what are the patterns that we can control here? Why do you tend to pick such knucklehead boyfriends? Or what is it that makes it hard for you to trust? Or why did you walk away from your family? Can we talk about that? So we have a, 
mental health pro a component to things, which I think enriches the experience for people and go deeper. So that's, yeah. Yeah, some people see that uh, mental health and faith really as as being um, at opposites at times. Yeah. And you all are sort of pulling that together. Uh, it, what role should uh, should faith play in, in mental health treatment and how can the role of faith, how can faith uh, enhance people who have uh, the, the remedies for people who have mental health problems. Like, I like the way you put, put it, Sal, is pulling it together. That's really how we kind of see it is, you know, we're trying to look at the person as body, mind, and soul, uh, body, mind, soul, and spirit, and all that together. So, we're, so one of the things, the basic tenet of Catholic anthropology is you look at the whole person. I mean, you don't want to get distracted by all sorts of things, but when you're trying to help somebody look at the whole person, what's very common is that people have spiritual problems and or mental health problems. Uh, spiritual problems, usually you're not listening to God, you don't believe God really exists, you don't believe there's any relationship or he's far distant, don't nothing with you. So that would be a spiritual com problem. Let's say like Christian religion, the Catholic Church has as its mission to make people reawaken that God is very near them and is loving, a loving, loving God. So, so part of the spiritual healing that we try to provide to people is being evidence of the love of God, that he's near you and he's, he's put me here to help you and let's see if we can help. The mental health problems though is it's very common. You've been unemployed for a while or your marriage went into the tank or you have kids you can't feed or kids you can't pay alimony payments on to get extremely discouraged, extremely discouraged. So what happens is this: the mental health problems and the spiritual problems some kind and overlap. I feel distant from God, and then I feel distant from everybody. I don't feel anybody really loves me. So there's two prongs. Sometimes you, the best portal of entry is go after the depression. Sometimes the best portal of entry is talk spiritually. But you're always trying to kind of integrate the two. The, 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 one of the things Benedict XVI has said is that the evidence of original sin is isolation. So whenever we get deta radically detached or isolated, our solution is to be more alone. Uh, then we're probably giving into that tendency to be in despair. Whereas living close to God means we will live closer to other people. So the notion of faith and uh, mental health uh, being divisive, that was, that was Freud's take. And you know, Freud now, he's as well about 120, 130 years later, a lot of that, those kind of radical divides have kind of uh, softened and there's much more integration between the two. Well, that's right. I, you know, the uh, National Alliance for Mental Health um, an interesting t statistic that you know, ten to twenty minutes of uh, of prayer, you know, decreases um, your metabolism, uh, improves your heart rate. Uh, you know, you have slower breathing. It, it's it calms your brain waves. And this is really a medical institution coming out saying that yeah. that again, getting back to this idea of listening to yourself as well as others, that taking these pauses for prayer and contemplation are actually good for you. That what we're doing today by sort of surfing the web and tweeting and jumping around. We're not really designed to do that. Our brains really don't like to operate. <laughs> That's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of people are, it's an endless stream of moments that can lead to despair, whereas there's a guiding narrative to our lives, you know, that we have a, a God that loves us radically, that introduces us, puts us in, in, with people that can also love us, that we can in turn love. So I think what happens if you get rid of God or get rid of your sense that you are uh, a soul as well, a, a spiritual person, then you are just kind of going from episodic, 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 and that can lead to discouragement pretty quickly. Yeah. I'd like to talk about two specific things. One mm -hmm. is the opioid crisis, and the other is middle schoolers. There seems to be a crisis, you know, with, with young people, and what sort of work are you doing in those areas? Well, the opioid thing we're seeing a lot, it's because uh, we cover 21 counties in Northern Virginia. Many of those counties are primarily, almost exclusively rural counties, and this seems to be more of a plague 
and the rural counties. Though to be clear, <coughs> excuse me, it's covering all the, all the different uh, stratas of our society and stuff. So um, it's very common uh, for people to really quickly get addicted to this. It usually comes, I think, from prescription drugs and then kind of managing pain and then becoming the sole way of managing pain and then getting addicted and, and not being able to afford it. So we're seeing a lot of this. To be honest, we don't know exactly what the solution is. It's, it's kind of hitting us so hard. But we're trying to help people understand that there is support both inpatient and outpatient to overcome the problem and then trying to be with them as, as, as they overcome that. Suicide uh, is, seems to be uh, on the rise. Again, it kind of goes up and down uh, at different times of the culture. It seems to be on the rise uh, for all age groups. I think some of that is the accessibility of guns. When people have guns, they make a suicide attempt, it succeeds. But uh, so it is, a, it is, in a sense, a more dangerous world out there where, where much more, much less, less stability and much more uh, a sense that one can get uh, opioids, uh, uh, drug problems, or one can just despair and not find meaning in life. So. Well, you know, it's interesting. Arlington County Public Schools has a, a this youth risk survey uh, that's out. Twenty percent of middle school students experience a sense of hopelessness uh, in the past year. Fourteen percent contemplated suicide. These are sixth graders we're talking about. You know, in your book, you say that there's you know increased online activity increases can increase depression, uh, certainly isolation, loneliness. You know, we see that now in, in even the millennials. Everyone's got their earbuds in. Are you all at Catholic Charity starting to think about ways to uh, to offer um, either programs for people who, have, who may be clinically depressed or others to sort of start taking this uh, online piece of this out of the equation? Well, you know, I think we're probably... We're probably attacking it more of just trying to, in the mental health, to, to have an encounter with, let's say in this case, a therapist, a genuine encounter with someone who really listens to you, really cares about you, and really wants to understand what's going on, and to be kind of a soulmate with your life. So as opposed to taking something away that means something to them, the online and stuff, I think the first thing is to have a real encounter with someone who's really going to listen to you, who can really trust. So many people have grown up. Uh, with parents that were kind of distant, uh, they're kind of orbiting around the family, never really kind of had a portal of entry, or maybe their parents divorced early, and they've had all these distractions. So, so many people are growing up now and living a life where they haven't really had any genuine encounters with people. So, what part of what we do in the in the healing process with our mental health programs is say, all right, I'm going to be here for you. Tell me what's going on. Whatever's on your mind, I'm happy to listen to, and let's go from there. And it usually takes people a while to really trust. Is this for real? I mean, does this person really care about me and all that? Then out of that, then you start, when you get that attachment, that kind of commitment to each other, then you can start dealing with what are the things that make you feel discouraged or despairing or what is it you believe or not believe in. So I think the first thing is to have that genuine encounter with somebody heart to heart. Uh, and, and then that builds up the person as a person and, and that, we might also find this interesting, we go around the diocese as a Catholic organization, we talk to the different pastors and we ask them, uh, how can we help you? And I thought the answer would be, well, we need more money to help people pay rent or we need more uh, job searching uh, skills and stuff. And what pastors have asked for more than anything else is counseling. I want, I'm a, so I'm a Catholic priest, I would like a counselor right down the hall there because so many of the people I see in our community, in our parish are wounded. I say, Father, you're going to give us a space? Do you have the space? I'll make the space. Uh, you just put, you give us somebody here. I say, you have to refer. I will refer. So that's we have actually counselors in 16 different parishes, which I think is very unique. But part of that come out of just asking the pastors, what do you want? That's what they want. Yeah. So, Art, I want to make sure we have time for you to issue a call to action to our listeners and, uh, and just share anything that's on your heart, anything you'd like people to know or become aware of or... 
Well, the one call to action I, I, w- I would suggest, Ed, uh, is that whenever you encounter somebody, treat them as a person. So, for example, uh, you go to McDonald's and they give you the coffee and stuff, and maybe just say to them, listen, I really appreciate that you gave me this. These guys are amazingly fast. Thank you very much. I hope you have a good day. Uh, the other is uh, when you come home to your family, don't just be transactional. Don't just say, hi, what's going on? What's happening? You know, come up to your wife, give her a kiss or a hug. And, or or uh, you see your neighbor outside who's getting his mail, maybe even once a week, even if it's that neighbor, you don't really like the guy. Normally you would say, I'll wait till he's done before I check mine. Go out there intentionally, go over to him and say, Hey, I haven't talked in a while. How's it going? What's going on? This is tremendously enriching for ourselves, not just for others. It's not like we're just going out there and putting some fairy dust so people feel better. It's like oh, we are built for this. We're built for these kind of encounters. So one thing I think is to try to break the transactional kind of tendency in our homes, in our in our homes, the place of influence. You know, so when you have a five-year-old, you come you can come home, they run and run and run, they grab you by the leg, and daddy's home and stuff. Then they're fifteen, you got to go searching for them. Well, you go searching for them. You go searching for them. Knock on the doors, you find them, and say. How was your day? He'll say, fine, and then you go deeper. So I think it's to create moments of encounters. Or you're your boss or whatever, you walk down the hall, you, you knock on the door, and you ask people how they're really doing, and you say, well, do I really care? We should care. Okay, okay you're gonna talk to me about the soccer game. I could care less about a soccer game. But I like this person, so I can listen about the soccer game. So I think that's one thing we can all do. The other is, is prayer. I've, I've talked to a few priests, they think the real way to break this tendency of transactional kind of sen- sentencing that we're in now is, is to really just shut your eyes, go deep inside. And our faith, at least the Catholic faith, the Christian faith, is you can literally do that. That God will attend to that. He will talk to you and listen to you. And I think that all of us could take more time to be reacquainted with God. And that will open, I think, our hearts to being more uh, acquainted with others. Art, thank you so much for your advice on listening and uh, the great work you guys are doing at uh, Catholic Charities for the communities, particularly supporting those people who have mental health issues and now online issues. You can find out more about Catholic Charities of the Arlington Diocese on the web at ccda.net and on our graceand30.com website. A replay of the show can be found at the graceand30.com and wera.fm websites. This is Ed and Sal signing off from Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.